Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. I want to talk to you about two very dramatic scenes today. One we'll just spend a couple of minutes on, but the first one a little bit longer. But both of the scenes I want you to see today are chock full of meaning. They are so meaningful, so packed, so dense, that it's to the point that as you go through the story, the scene, it feels like something will burst in this story, and, and you will burst, <laughs> and surely you would have if you had been in the room when these scenes originally took place. But first, let me just spend a word a little time, a little word on slavery to set it up. As Americans, when we talk about slavery, we think of our nation's experience with it. And when we talk about American slavery, it has been romanticized and distorted and a hundred wrong things said about it by enemies and by friends. But it was awful. It was an awful, awful thing, and it was wrong. Slavery. I think somebody was right, some historian, some analyst called it our original sin. It was so wrong and so devastating, so awful that it would drive a godly lover of the Word, a truly godly man, Nat Turner, a slave. When he saw and looked around him at the hopelessness and the appalling nature of how people were treated, his people, it drove this godly lover of God's Word insane to the point that he thought slaughtering slave owners was doing God's good work. The ugliness of it and the unfairness was so appalling to somebody as gentle as a Harriet Tubman that after she gains her freedom, this little lady handicapped, after she gains her freedom, she risked it over 300 times to go back into the slave states, risk capture of herself so she can set other people free. It was that bad. I've told you before about a a set that I have. I've had it for a long time. I've not been able to finish it. It's called Remembering Slavery. It's a book, and here's how old it is. It's cassette tapes. <laughs> I don't even have a player anymore. But I've never been able to finish them because they're so terrible. It was a project done by a thing called the Federal Writers Project in the early 1930s when the government, to keep as many people employed as possible during a rough time, they took writers and they employed them by sending them into the South and other places to interview people that were now elderly that had been slaves when they were much younger. Just to see what their take on it was, to see what they remembered, to record their voices, and it's their voices that are very haunting as they tell their stories and to write down their accounts so they'd be preserved. And 
And as you listen to those stories of those old people that had served on plantations in Georgia and Carolina and other places, about how awful it was, how difficult it was to be owned by another human being. And you hear their accounts of their masters, how they treated them. I remember one story of an old guy, he talked about his family, his children, very small, and he was so proud and he was so pleased to be a father and it sounds like he was a very good father until one day they came and they took his babies and sold them. And the impotent rage that went through him, he was so upset, but there was nothing he could do except go off in the woods and put his head in a log somewhere and cry. You hear the stories of their beatings and all the rest, and and I've told you before, the last one I listened to, and I can't go on with it, they asked this old guy about his experiences, and he detailed them, and it was awful. And then the interviewer said, one last question, if you knew that you were going to go back into slavery tomorrow, what would you do? And just that quick, the old man said, I'd shoot myself. And I thought, my God, what happened? Slavery. People try and romanticize it and say, oh, it's better that they were here, brought here against their will than stayed in Africa, that's pretty hard to believe when you see some of the pictures and hear some of the stories. Slavery. Now hold those thoughts on slavery. As we walk through the doorway of Jesus' hometown synagogue, He's back home and He heads for the synagogue. Now, he wouldn't have known it by that name. That's a Greek term. He would have known it as the place called the Bet Knesset. Knesset survives today. That's the assembly. That's the legislature. That's the meeting place of the lawmakers in Israel, the Knesset. Bet Knesset, the house of assembly. That's how Jesus would have known it. He's back home and he goes into that place. It's also sometimes called the Bet Tifala, the house of prayer. Or, or most familiarly, it was referred to as the shul. We get our word school from that. We think about synagogues today as a place of worship. In Jesus' day, they really weren't. You worshiped at the temple. The synagogue was a noisy place where you learned. It was a shul, a school. And Jesus walks into the doorway of his hometown synagogue. And it's noisy. It's a buzzing place as he walks through. And it is every day. It's a buzzing place with learners of all ages. Their children, some as maybe young as three, and they're learning their Hebrew alphabet. <laughs> because they didn't speak Hebrew anymore. They spoke a pidgin language, an Aramaic, a mixture But you had to learn Hebrew in order to read the Scripture. And so there are little children learning their alphabet. And seated just down the table, there are old men hunched over the scrolls. The precious Scripture. And it's so precious that as they read, they they will not mark their place by even touching it. They will get a, a little stick or a stylus and they will follow along as they read down those wonderful words. The very words of God. 
or in front of them. And they will read a little bit, and then in groups of two or three, they will talk a little bit, and then they'll get together in a larger group, and they'll consider what did your group say, and what did your group say, and they will pour over the Word by the hour in that place. And in walks Jesus into this building where he had learned his alphabet, where he had first learned about the Torah, the first five books, where he had heard the stories of the sages and the rabbis, the people that he would later call the ancients, had taught him things. He'd heard the story there of Abraham, Father Abraham, father of the faithful who gets it all started. He'd heard the story of Isaac and his sacrifice. He'd heard the story of David and the mistakes that David had made, the fatal mistakes that David had made. But somehow, with God's breath on his life, he had taken those ugly things and had produced the most beautiful of songs. He learned all of that there. He learned about Moses, the lawgiver, and the wandering in the desert for a 38-year experiment in forgetting things that you thought you knew about God that were myths, and meeting the real God. He'd learned it all in that place. And there he had learned to celebrate the Passover. And about the Passover lamb, that one day he would become that slaughtered lamb. It was all there, and he walks back in. Now he has grown up, and he's got his own train of followers behind him. He is a, a teacher, a rabbi of some reputation. In fact, public appearances are becoming problematic for him. He's becoming that popular. There could be would-be assassins in the crowd, and so he has to be careful. But he's a known person now, and he's back home, and he heads for the, for the synagogue. Now, he's a guest with some fame. So that means the president of the synagogue would have deferred to him and allowed him the privilege on that day of selecting two passages of Scripture to read. One from the law, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, his choice. And one passage selected from the prophets. Now we don't know what Jesus selected that day from the law. But it says when he finished that, it came time for him to read from the prophets. And that would be the topic of discussion then in the small groups and the larger group for today, whatever he selected. And he turns to the attendant. There's a large cabinet. It's called the ark that all of the scrolls are stored in. And he would have requested the Isaiah scroll. And he unrolls it and lays it on the bench in front of him. And then Scripture says he selects a passage, but he doesn't read from it. He recites it from memory. If you want to read along with what Jesus read on that day, it's in Luke chapter 4. Jesus reads from the Isaiah scroll, verse 18, in our Gospel of Luke, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Some of our Bibles include, and to heal the brokenhearted, Isaiah does. 
He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. He rolled the scroll back up. He would have put the mantle back over it, the protective covering of cloth, handed it back after kissing it to the attendant who put it away. And then Jesus, this traveling teacher, did the most unusual thing. He looked at the crowd and he said, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he sat down and he sat down to teach. Now, what is Jesus saying? Everything he does is perfectly choreographed. The reading he chose, the way he would have read it, the fact that he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled for you to hear. And then when he sets down, it's all on purpose. What's he saying? What did, what did he just say when he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to heal the brokenhearted and set the prisoners free and proclaim the favorable year of the Lord? What did he just say? And that's what the people sitting there would have said. What did he just say? He had just turned the world upside down and just introduced them to the backward kingdom. Because what he's just done is said, he is the Messiah. They've been looking for generations, for hundreds of years. It begins in Genesis, where one of the early patriarchs talks about that day when Shiloh will come. And even before that, when Mother Eve is promised that one of your descendants will crush the head of the enemy. They've been looking forward to that one coming all that time. Isaiah talks about it. Jeremiah talks about the Messiah coming. Even Malachi, the last book, talks about one he calls the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in His wings. He's talking about this Messiah. The people thought about the Messiah all the time, sometimes every day. In many homes, they had a chair reserved for that day, that magical day when Messiah would show up and be the deliverer and the Savior and answer all the questions. And they had a chair just for Him. In some synagogues, they had a chair just for Him. And some people think that's the chair Jesus sat in when He sat down to teach that day. But Messiah would be a deliverer. He would be a champion. He would be a savior. The word Christ is the Greek version of Messiah. Both words mean the anointed one. The one who's anointed to be king. He would be the king. The Christ. The Messiah. And here he sits down and he says to them, I am the Messiah. I am. They never dreamed that Messiah would walk into their synagogue. They never dreamed that Messiah would be this traveling teacher from their own hometown. And they certainly never believed that Messiah would be God Himself. He's the Messiah. But He's also saying, in picking that Scripture, that He will bring liberation. He'll bring freedom. 
He says it a couple of different ways in the passage. And then he says that he's come to proclaim the favorable year of God. Now look at those last two together. He'll bring liberation and he proclaims the year of God's favor. Look at those two together because they belong together. That's a remarkable little event that he's talking about that is very little talked about. Every seven years was a year of release. It was to be a year of release. And when the people were obedient to God, they did what His Word called for. And every seven years, the year of release, anybody who was a Hebrew and a servant was serving as a servant, you were released from your servitude. Slaves were set free. The land was allowed to rest, and debts that were owed weren't owed anymore. Now, after seven sets of seven years, seven times seven, 49, after seven sets on the 50th year, when that year rolled around, that was a very special year. That was a year that was so special that the specialness didn't wear off for 12 months. It was what was called the year of Jubilee. It comes from a Hebrew word, yobel, which is the ram's horn that you blow to announce the year, the 50th year, the year of Jubilee. Now, the year of Jubilee was that seventh year on steroids. All possessions that had been borrowed or used as collateral in loans all returned to the rightful owner. All debts were canceled. The economy was reset. Society was renewed and reordered. And that kept runaway greed from being allowed to accumulate. And if you were under a labor contract, you were free. Work during that year of Jubilee was kept at a bare minimum. We only did what we had to do to keep food on the table. Otherwise, there was a lot of leisure and there was time to celebrate. The rich and the poor, they didn't remain separated forever by wealth. And it was, it was 12 months of great festivity because why? They were set free again. It was the year. Of Jubilee. Everybody knows the Liberty Bell, right? Somewhere in Philadelphia, maybe you've seen it. For sure you've seen pictures of it. But did you know that inside the Liberty Bell, there is a scripture from Leviticus 25 that talks about the year of Jubilee? That bell was rung in 1776 to announce our independence. Inside, it announced the year of Jubilee. Fifty years later, they went to ring it, and it cracked. Some people think it cracked because we did not keep the year of Jubilee. Things were not reset, and debts were not recalled, and people were not set free, and it cracked. You can make of that what you will. But when that 12 months came around, that 50th year, it was festivity time because we are set free again. And as Jesus reads this about the year of Jubilee, He he then announces, He says, now that I am on the scene, this is the year, the acceptable year, the year of God's favor, all code talk, He's talking 
Jubilee. Jubilee. Now that I'm on the scene, it's a year of Jubilee. Now, Jubilee talk, if you know how to look for it, is in a lot of what Jesus has to say. He's constantly talking about being set free. Freedom from slavery, from, from a slavery that is awful and is inescapable. He says, I can set you free from that. Could anything be better? Let's think for a minute about ways you can be enslaved. You can be enslaved by your past, can't you? By failures, by mistakes, by regrets, by lies that people told on you, or lies you've told yourself, by wounds in the past. They can enslave you and make you a prisoner because the past can steal today right out from under you. But Jesus comes with all this jubilee talk. I'll give you an instance. Turn to John 5. He's talking Jubilee when he says in the 24th verse, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, and has passed out of death into life. Well, the fact is that our past can make us slaves. But Jesus says you've been set free. This is Jubilee talk here. And he's talking time zones. Do you realize there are four time zones? Two of them a believer should have nothing to do with. Two of them should occupy our attention. There's the past. We should have nothing to do with the past. The Scripture says that the past is dead. Let the dead past bury the dead, Jesus will say. There's the dead past. In another place, the Scripture says very emphatically, forget what is behind. Even in the Old Testament, God is pictured as taking our ugly past and dropping it behind Him in a sea of forgetfulness. Bury your past. Forget your past. As believers, we should not dabble and dwell in the past been forgiven. But then there's the future. We shouldn't live there either because the future doesn't exist. (laughs) And think about it. Most of the things that you worry about happening in the future probably never happened, but you spent so much time worrying about them, it didn't exist. So as a believer, we don't fool with the past and we don't fool with the present, but there are two more time zones. There's now, and we should live now. When Moses asks the Lord, what is your personal name? It's I am who I am. The eternal now. All time for God is now. We should live in now. Today is a gift. This moment is a gift. We live now. Not in the past, not in the future, but now. And then there's a fourth time zone that should, as believers, occupy our attention, and that's eternity. In fact, now is a lot more like eternity than future is like eternity. Eternity is different. And that should occupy our attention as believers, but not 
the past. We should be looking forward to eternity, which is the greatest of jubilees. So we can be enslaved to our past. We can be slaves to sin, to our own sin, by our own sin. We, we, we know that God forgives us, but we can't forgive ourselves, and we're prisoners to our own sin, sins that will haunt you, sins of things you did and things that you should have done that you didn't do can haunt you. Sin can be a terrible taskmaster. It can beat you and bludgeon you and dog you into your sleep, into the night, and steal your night. We can't forgive ourselves. We're not letting the Holy Spirit do His work, by the way. And we're making our standards stronger than God's and higher than God's. Jesus comes along with Jubilee talk and says about our sin, neither do I condemn you. I don't condemn you. So we don't need to be prisoners because on the cross, He set us free. It's it's our year of Jubilee. We, We can be enslaved by fear. Think of how horrible it must have been for American slaves to be slaves. But we can be enslaved just like that by our fear. And what is it we usually fear? Usually the future. So we're back to those time zones again. The future, don't live there. Don't worry. Jesus will say, be anxious for nothing. He will say, fear not, little flock. The Word tells us perfect love. I love this Jubilee talk. Perfect love casts out fear. I want you to take a look at one last verse. John 13, and here's here's my other scene for you. Not in the synagogue now, but it's Jesus' last night on the planet, and He's chosen to gather with a few of His close friends to celebrate, you guessed it, the Passover. That time when the sacrificial lamb is slain for the sins of all the people, And He is the Lamb. And He gathers before the event with His close circle of friends, followers. And they're sitting at a meal. And as Jesus looks around the table, He begins, ever the teacher, to talk to them. There was a problem that had arisen before the dinner started. They had come in from the street to sit down around the table. Don't think Da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper with a banquet table and 13 guys seated on one side of the table posing for a picture. I always want to tell those, hey, fellas, there's another side of the table. You don't have to bunch up like that. That's not the way it would have been. It would have been a little low table. They would have not seated themselves, but they would have reclined on cushions and pillows. And if you've got 13 men laying down around a table, eating, relaxing, that means my feet, my stinky feet, my feet that walked in the open sewer they called the street, my feet, I don't wear socks, it's not shoes, it's sandals, I'm dirty, they stink, and they're in your face. It becomes fairly obvious this is not a good time to eat. This is not appetizing. 
The aroma was probably overpowering because somebody in the preparation had forgotten to hire the kid to wash the feet. Problem. Now because touching filthy feet, feet that had walked in the droppings of animals, feet where the toilet from the night before had been emptied in the hope that somebody would kick it in front of somebody else's house, they had no sewers. The street is a sewer. The garbage is dumped there. It's not a pretty sight. And they'd been walking in it all day long. And because that was filthy, there were prohibitions against touching people's feet. You didn't do that. So how do you get your feet clean for a banquet to where the stench isn't overpowering? Well, you hire somebody to do it. But you couldn't hire somebody to do that job. So you know, for banquets, who usually ended up washing feet were kids that were handicapped, developmentally disabled kids, kids whose thinking processes weren't completely formed to the point that you could pay them a little bit to do such a filthy job. Jesus takes the place of that developmentally disabled child, and he kneels down. And the hands that spun the world in space wash our feet. And then he says to them, do you realize what I just did to you? He had to tell them. He said, if I, being the Lord, wash your feet, how much more should you serve one another? So just another word on slavery. Literally another word. When Jesus talks about you and me being servants, slaves, it's a different kind of slavery He calls us to. It's not the one that we've been delivered from. It's not like American slavery. He uses a totally different word, the Bible does. It's the Greek word doulos. It means bond slave. And here's the way the bond slave worked. If you were working for somebody as a servant, maybe you were in debt and you'd sold yourself to work for them for a specified amount of time. And you worked for this person and you grew fond of them and they grew fond of you and it was more like family. Then at the end of your time, if you chose, it was all up to you. But if the experience had been so good, you had been so well treated, if you wanted, you could say to the owner, I want to be your doulos. And what he would do would be take you to the doorpost, the front door, and put your ear against that doorpost and take a little pick and put a little hole through your ear into the doorpost. And some of your blood would go on the doorpost of the home. You were now a member of that family. You were doulos. You had chosen to attach yourself to the family that you loved and that loved you. It was a definite move up for a lot of people. That's what Jesus says. Be my servant like that. Be my servant. Do what I do. 
how backward this new kingdom of His is to us. That He would call us out of slavery and then call us to be servants. The best way to escape the slavery of the past, of sin and fear, is to become a servant of Christ. That's how backward it is. So another word on slavery that's literally true, doulos, be his bondservant. Jubilee. Everything is set free. The land rests and possessions are returned and debts of long standing are canceled. And that's a reminder that everything on this planet, it does not belong to me. Nothing belongs to me. Nothing belongs to the Fortune 500 companies. Nothing belongs to the 10 richest people in America. Nothing belongs to the 1%. Everything belongs to God. It goes back to God. And everything belongs to God. And I belong to God because of the cross. We belong to God. This book... This book is a, a marvelous collection. And I hope, my hope for you in this year to come is that you will learn it. And you will love it. And you will live it. But I'll tell you what I'm finding out for me. I'm finding something in it that I don't find anywhere else. I'm finding that there is something embedded deep in this Word of God, the words that God spoke. There is something deeply embedded in it that you find nowhere but there. A lot of people talk about sacred spaces and sacred places. They travel off to Mecca or the Ganges River, or the Vatican, or the Sikhs have their golden shrine. A lot of people talk about sacred places, but this book, listen to me, talks about sacred time. How a moment can be so special. Because God does something significant with us in that moment. And that every moment can be special. And that there are times that are unique, sacred time. That's what the Sabbath is all about. But there are certain times that are, that are special. History does not, in spite of what people say, it does not repeat itself. Times are unique. Sometimes are special. And you and I are living in one. This is Jubilee. And all of our debts have been canceled. Hallelujah. I want you to stand with me. We are free. We are free. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.